0: support us at patreon.com slash solidarity house that's patreon.com slash solidarity house
1: i just you know i had a beard for a while and it was itching me and in florida at the time it's you know it's hot as hell here so i just decided you know i'm gonna shave it off for a while and just have a little ned flanders thing going and see how that works out <laughs> for a while
0: well oakley doakley yes <laughs> Uh, we have chip chisholm here of nightmare theater hey how has the year been for you uh in terms of being able to do the things that you love or how i mean it's been almost two years now how has how has this this epoch uh been for you uh in terms of pursuing uh your interests in filmmaking and tv (laughs) and and monsters
1: uh, we were ready to do our season three in, in 2020, but the station where we film, it's a PBS station at a junior college, and they were completely shut down because of COVID. So everything got delayed. I had already written it. I mean, my, my partner and I had already written the episodes. And so we, uh, we just kind of sat out 2020. We were booked at a few conventions, and we had to, we, you know, they got canceled, and we had to back out of them because it just wasn't safe to do it. But then, in, when 2021 hit and things uh, started to get a little bit better, it improved a little bit. And we had like a week, opportun- one week, seven days, or five days, I guess, if you look at it that way, to get into the studio to film our episodes. So we filmed, they'll we, uh, call back. We filmed our episodes. And then we noticed that one of the films that we had done, I think it was, uh, it was Circus of Fear that we had done in a previous season. We couldn't post it online because of international copyright. So uh, the director and producer guy said, I need you to write a new episode. And I said, well, when do you need to buy? And he said, well, tomorrow. So, so I, uh, I turned it out overnight. And so well, actually what we had to do during that week is we had to film 15 episodes because another one of our movies had lost. I mean, this international copyright, I don't understand it. I mean, maybe an attorney smarter than me would. Is this an some- EU thing?
0: Or is it? I think Asian? it is.
1: It, it actually was EU. It was. Uh, I feel was, like,
0: yeah, because I feel like the the EU changed. Like a bunch of things changed. I think uh, in in terms of copyright, you had to start all over on those or re redo we, them.
1: We did, we did, and we did it. It was a uh, one movie that we uh, did in our first season as our premiere episode. We had the same situation happen. So it was another British film. So I'm thinking the EU. There may be more to That 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 may be what the issue was. So we had to redo that. Well, we got the we got all the episodes filmed. We're uh, now on in like uh, six, five, six cities in Florida and three or four in Tennessee. And so we're on. We're all on PBS. We're on like nine PBS affiliates. And so uh, it's it's going well. We uh, we we try to take a different sort of a different approach than most uh, for a hosts, where we you know there's funny bits and comedy bits, but there's a lot of information about you know how the movies get made, who made these movies, why they made these movie and as luck would have it there's a guy in town a family in town that's just a lot of money they're a rich family in town and they're one of our uh benefactors and one of the guys has a museum where he has movie props so what real things that were used in movies so one of the characters we came up with is called the curator and every episode we'll go visit the curator and he'll have you know like vincent Pri- uh, vincent price's autograph, or or uh gun that was used in buck rogers and so we cool. can we can we make it a little educational and that's how we got on pbs was well, one of the one of the ways other ways is one of our my uh, writing partner had some links and good connections there but we we promote the an educational aspect so we teach a lot a bit about a lot about movie props and movie making and it's, it's worked out well for us and so we're we're hoping to expand into other cities we're there's a possible national distribution network that's being set up with some PBS affiliates, not for us, but for for PBS in general. And if we can get linked into that, I don't care if it's on at one o'clock in the morning, as long as you know we're on we're on somewhere, some people are watching. So and that's what's really cool is we get an email from a guy like in New York and says, my sister turned me on to this. And so we like that.
0: There's something different about working TV and radio than there is uh, working uh, wholly in digital and Internet, isn't sure. there?
1: Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And it's a, uh, I, I may have told you part of the story before. When we first started doing this, we've been doing this off and on for about 20 years. And when we first started, it was my friend and I in a little fishing cabin. He had almost didn't even have electricity. So we, uh, we propped our camera up on books, but we went in when we first went into the studio at WSRE and there were three cameraman and sound guys and a lighting guy and the lighting guy says, how do you want me to set up? the lighting?" I said, I don't know, man. I have no idea. I said, but you, you guys do. And so it was really a big shock. And we, you know, when you work with three cameras, when you used to have just like a Sony digicam sitting on a pile of Noam Chomsky books, it's a it really makes the, the film process was a lot different. So it's good to have, you know, we can write it a certain way, but we've got a great director and he can, he can really take some things that we hadn't even thought of. Like one example is this year, this, ep- this season, we do an episode of a movie called The Devil's Hand. Mm-hmm. And I, I make a deal with the devil to get myself this fountain of, this gravy fountain in the studio that will just put out gravy all the time. And so when the demon shows up, our director had the idea that said, well, what if we made him huge, like 50 feet tall while he's talking to you? Like, uh, you know, like in a genie movie, those little with where, where the guy's huge. And I said, well, I didn't envision it that way. But if you could do that, absolutely. So We're looking forward to seeing how that works out. Our director, he just won a few PBS tellies for from documentaries he did.
0: What's his name?
1: His name is James Roy. He, uh, he made a uh, documentary, a uh, country singer named Hank Lachlan. And it's just won a couple of awards, and so he's best documentary. That's good stuff.
0: What other projects or what other things have you uh, done, or what even just uh, informal stuff that you like to do around uh, the horror genre?
1: Sure, we uh, we used to before COVID and before our theaters really got impacted, we would host like month month film festivals in October, where every weekend we would show two two different horror movies or classic sci-fi type movies. And, you know, first time we did it, we said, hell, nobody's going to show up for this. But we we filled the theater, which is, you know, a three or four hundred space theater at the time. That was a big crowd. And my writing partner and I, we got started in college radio. We were both um, on the debate team, actually. And so we were also on the radio and we did zines for a while. We're hoping to put out a new zine. He he sponsors my writing partners named Mike Inslee. He created something in Pensacola called Pensacon. And it's a huge convention. It's one of the biggest, probably one of the biggest ones in Florida. And it's every February or March, depending on how the calendar works out. And so I don't have a whole lot to do with that. That's mainly him, but he's, uh, I help out when I can. So it's any, anything that promotes, I'm maybe doing air quotes here, but what they call nerd culture he and I are all
0: about. And in terms of, of kind of the movie making and, and TV, TV production mm-hmm. um, yes. stuff, uh, you you like to say that you started out knowing absolutely jack shit uh, right. about uh, about about it. And so you're uniquely qualified then yeah. to kind of say, what's that learning curve like? Uh, how hard is it to, to uh, get to the point where you're making reasonably, you know, good product, high production sure. value, sure. that kind of thing. What are what are some of the challenges?
1: Well, it's a lot easier now. When we did this 20 years ago, we had a, a Sony handycam, and then we had the my my partner edited it on his computer, and then we had the low convert it to a three quarter inch video. And it well, you can't see me, but I'm like literally pushing start. You know how you used to make mixtapes in the old days from tapes instead of from CDs, and you would have to press sure. play and press record, press play, press record. But nowadays, with with these you know really sophisticated video editing software you can get online, all you really have to have it's a tr- truly almost punk rock in the DIY sense. You just have to have the will to do it and the and the, and the idea that you're not going to care if people don't like it. It's like you do it because you love it, and if believe me, if you get it out there, there's going to be some people who don't who like it. Some people won't like it, but there will be people who like it, and those people will find you and will tell you that they like it. And that's that's really a good feeling. Is it an expensive endeavor? No, no. And uh, it if you have the I guess if you were doing it completely yourself, the uh, the upfront cost would be a camera. But honestly, with a cell phone, you know, the most cameras on cell phones could do it now, and you can probably find free editing software online. So it's, it doesn't cost much in that sense. But you can really do it yourself for, for not a whole lot. I mean, my, I could probably film with my uh, old Samsung cell phone
0: do you do any editing yourself or um do you uh leave that to to mike and and others
1: well nowadays with since we're filming at wsre they do it and they're uh it's an actual tv studio so they they do it for us in the old days we you know literally sat there on the computer pressing buttons but nowadays we've got a we got a team of people at the station they do all damn near all of it. all we do is write it and, and act in it which you know, and you're filming 15 episodes in, in that many few days. That really takes a toll on you. But it was fun. We, we had a good time.
0: What's it like writing horror uh, and writing uh, weird, you know, that kind of the kind of weird stuff?
1: Well, he, uh, we, uh, like we start with a movie and then we, we try to think of what could we do. And a lot, so many movies are in, there's only a finite number of movies that are in the public domain. So we have to come up with um, things that other people haven't done. And so what we'll do is we'll watch the movie and then we'll come up with like a shell of an idea and then we'll just, uh, you know, start writing. And a lot of time, I do, I do quite a bit of it myself, but my wife helps me a lot and she'll read something and says, I don't like this. So you need, you need to start all over. And so, you know, I do, and then I get all my initial drafts written and I send it to Mike and he, he makes changes and we collaborate. It's very collaborative. We work back and forth on it. And so it's really, once you get started, it's not that hard. But sometimes you really sit there and look at the keyboard and say, geez, I can't, I can't think of anything. But then an idea, you know, you'll just think of something off the top of your head. An idea will come up. And it's really not that difficult once you get started. It's like, think of an example for the movies we did this year. We did, um, we did a movie called Hands of a Stranger. It was uh, in like a 1960s. It was an Italian type film and so the guy he's a he's a concert pianist right and he get he loses his hands and so they do a hand transplant turns out the hands came from a murderer right and so the, he starts killing people well we got the idea that we would have our werewolf lose his hand and so the only hand we had available was a was a female hand and so we put the hand on him and that uh, we really tried to play with like gender gender issues right here and so it was it was a lot of fun like my character is a my character can be an abrasive Dimwit, and Mike's the genius. Mike's a much smarter guy, so I make fun of him for having a lady hand, and Mike keeps pointing out that that's horrible. That's the wrong thing to be. He's the same guy he was yesterday. He's still your friend. Doesn't matter what kind of hand he has. So we were able to write a whole script on that, and we at at the end of every episode, we try to tie in some type of uh, I don't want to say moral lesson, but some type of uh, of you know rethink the way you're thinking about things. Everybody's different, but we're all we're all in this together, and we're all working toward the same end goal. That's very
0: different than a lot of horror fiction and a yeah. lot of horror
1: mm-hmm. uh, um, okay. movies
0: and TV, which maybe you know not all of it, certainly, because I think there there are people that are. Uh, Mm -hmm. trying to send positive messages. But there's also, there's definitely also a school of thought that horror is really, you know, very nihilistic. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, you know, you have your, the sort of Cthulhu mythos that, uh, you know, these, these monster gods are indifferent uh, to humans. Um, And so none of our moral lessons make sense. But it sounds like you're almost doing like humanist Horror. Yeah. well you uh last year uh last halloween you mm-hmm. uh you j- visited us and mm-hmm. and yeah. had a list of uh, top five horror movies of all time mm-hmm. um uh maybe it was top 10 i can't even remember yeah. remember i'll have to i'll have to go here. back and check um uh you had a list of top horror mm-hmm. movies of all time the last time yeah. you yeah. you joined us uh yeah. this time um you have a list of uh, kind of a short list of the weirdest uh, yes, movies uh, out there. And I have to say here, we've been watching a lot of really weird um, mm-hmm. uh, mov- horror movies uh, and paranormal movies mm-hmm. um, all month long uh, and Please. continue to do it. It's almost, it's almost like we have um, Shudder on continuous play oh, yeah. in our mm-hmm. meeting room, um, just so that you know, if people come in here to work or eat or have meetings or whatever, they can, you know, there'll they'll be a, a, a monster movie going on or a horror movie going on on the screen. So, uh, yes, so we're 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 big into it, um, and there's Ooh. and there's a lot of weird stuff, and I mm-hmm. like weird stuff. Um, and I so uh, you're uh, so you're coming in today to to talk a little bit about weird movies.
1: Yeah, these are the ones that I, you know, you, everybody's definition of weird is probably a little slightly different, but I picked the ones that I thought had great images and great visuals and were, were just interesting. And the first is a movie called The Wasp Woman, which came out in 1959, and it stars Susan Cabot, and, and it was directed by Roger Corman. Susan Cabot's character plays a lady who runs a cosmetics company, and she's upset because the sales are dropping, and they are dropping because she's too, somehow viewed as too old by the public to run a makeup company. And so this scientist convinces her that royal jelly from queen wasps can reverse the aging process. So she starts shooting up and she turns into a wasp-like monster. She has the head of a wasp, but the body of a human and she doesn't have any wings. Now, the movie poster had the complete opposite picture of the monster that was supposed to be in the movie. The movie poster had a wasp, a body and a human face. And I imagine there's a lot of commentary there on appearance and beauty standards, but I don't know that Roger Corman realized any of that. It's a really weird and interesting movie. And here's some interesting facts on Susan Cabot. Uh, she dated the king of Jordan in the 50s, or 60s, rather, but he broke it off when she found, he found out that she was Jewish. And then she was actually murdered by her own son in 1986. Holy shit. Next movie is called, a uh, similar movie, it's called The Alligator People that came out in 1959. Same year, it stars Beverly Garland and Lon Chaney. And this uh, the scientist fellow deep in the swamp, and he's using reptilian hormones to treat... Accident victims. He thinks, you know, people who have lost limbs or lost legs or whatever in accidents, that he can give them this medicine and their arms and legs will grow back. Well, it doesn't. It turns them into murderous alligator-like creatures. And Lon Chaney Jr., he plays this uh, really terrible character who gets his his comeuppance. And here's the interesting thing about this movie. And there's a rumor that there was a video game for the Atari 2600 that was made on this movie and about this movie in 1983, but it was never released. Now, if you put that alligator people video game into some search engines, you can find some stuff on it. But I think that would have been really cool to play an Atari twenty six hundred game based on a movie that came out in nineteen fifty nine.
0: Uh, given that date, nineteen eighty three, I'm wondering if it was uh, coincided around the ET debacle,
1: right? I was going to say the same thing. That's. I think. I, I think you're probably correct. I think that's probably what happened. So I didn't
0: but, realize Lon Chaney Jr. was still making movies uh, in, uh, 1959, I, I did see a picture of him mm-hmm. and Lugosi, uh, and I want to say there were a couple of other people in the picture just all sitting around reading something and laughing or something yeah, like I that. Yeah, I think
1: I've seen that. I think, I, I think I've seen, I was gonna look up something here when I was gonna, I think Loncini Jr., he died in 1973, in one of his, uh, the last movies he made was a movie called, uh, well, we actually, this is another, if I can deviate from a um, moment, we had written an episode on Dracula versus Frankenstein, which was uh, mm-hmm. filmed in 1971, and, uh, but then we found out there were copyright issues on that one as well, and it was interesting because, you know, it was, he was, Lon Chaney Jr. was still making movies well into the 1970s. But I, or at least up until 1971. But I think he had a severe alcohol problem, and he was really not not all there on some of the sets. And so, in some of the movies, you can clearly see the toll taken on him. He's still a legend. Next is uh, you probably know this one: Return of the Living Dead, 1985, and it's got a, yes a the,
0: the, the the satirical or the sort of humorous yes. uh,
1: subline yep. subbranch
0: um, yep, yep.
1: of uh, of the Living Dead. Oh, this is great. It's got a soundtrack. It's got T- TSOL, The Cramps and The Damned, and it stars Clue Beluger and The Talented Miss Quigley. And it was directed by a guy named Dan O'Bannon. And for those of, I don't want to give any spoilers, for those Dark Star, seen, baby. Yep. These two saps released this trioxin, which brings the dead back to life at this medical supply house. And this kind this, of uh, next to a cemetery. And this movie helped popularize the concept of zombies yelling brains. There's a crazy scene with a. It's a medical supply house, so there's this uh, embalmed, bisected dog that's cut in half like the old visual man, and of course, the gas brings the dog back to life, so you can see a half dog, and if you want, if those who watch it uh, re- uh, in the coming days look for the escape Nazi who runs the morgue crematory, so that's pretty, that's a pretty cool, there's some great scenes in that movie, you, you know what I'm talking about, there's some great scenes and great visuals in mm-hmm. that movie, and a good, pretty good ending, too, so... Really love that movie.
0: To your knowledge, did uh, are there Romero purists who uh, have a beef uh, with uh, those you know those other movies?
1: I, I think I've I've come across people in fandom that are like that, but beyond a lot of and uh, I may mean, uh, editorialize here, a lot of uh, male fandom at least becomes toxic and just unpleasant people, and so I just try to shut all that out. I mean, there are people out there who complain about, you know, you know, you got a female doctor who now they're going to spend eight, eight hours a day on the internet complaining about it. So mm-hmm. I try to just avoid the toxicity. I Good like the you. film. Yeah. Next one is uh, Next one is one I really like called uh, Videodrome. And it stars a uh, noted jackass James Woods and the great baby oh, yeah. hair. Yeah, and it's directed by David Cronenberg and the makeup by Rick Baker. And it was called The New Clockwork Orange by Andy Warhol. There's some amazing visuals and an incredible musical store. Basically, technology has embedded itself in literally every aspect of our of, of our lives in the film. And it was made in, what, 1983? So that was very, uh, very uh, prescient, pre- how do you say that word, prescient, where you can predict the future. So Cronenberg knew what he was talking about. For those who haven't seen that one, there's some great great visuals in that movie or any Cronenberg movie for that matter.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, blew my mind. Absolutely blew my mind.
1: Yeah, um, it was young and impressionable
0: and I think mm-hmm. that anyways, it helped me, uh, understand, uh, sci-fi as well yeah. as sort of the, uh, that, uh, zone where horror
1: and sci-fi, uh,
0: yeah. you know, are so much the same.
1: It really is an interesting, interesting movie. And, um, uh, I was, I'm 52 now, so I was uh, 14 and 83, so I saw it when it came out. Uh, I remember. I probably don't remember, I won't you know, claim I understood it all at the time, but I remember thinking, man, this is some weird, weird scenes in this movie. Can't overstate the importance of Rick Baker in any, any film. He's really, really, he did, they created the best makeup award at the Oscars pretty much for, because of him. So uh, prior to him, he was the first recipient of that award it was getting it was given to him by vincent price actually so it was um, for american werewolf in london so he's really another wonderful movie oh yeah absolutely i watched that just the other night as a matter of fact so that was a really great movie and the last one on my list is a personal just uh, own horn blowing it's called frankenstein's bloody nightmare and it came out in 2006 this is a very independent film and this film would I think, you know, the way I've described it is it would make Satan himself get up out of the theater and go to the box office to get a refund. It was directed by John Hand. Now, I'm in this movie and I can't tell you what it's about. Basically, the uh, overall premise is this woman dies and the mad doctor goes around killing folks to get uh, spare parts. And it is just a, a strange convoluted mess. And it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, let me just deviate here. I went to a panel once at the university and it was on uh, films made in Florida. And so they talked about all these great films that have been filmed in Florida. And then the guy was wrapping up with bad films that have been made in Florida. And I said, oh, I know what he's going to say. And he sure did. This lecturer mentioned Frankenstein's Bloody Nightmare. And then I raised my hand and said, well, you know, part of that film was filmed in my office. But in John Haynes' defense, he did all of this truly himself. He wrote it, he directed it, he did the music, he edited it. He found a place that still sold Super 8 film online back in 2006 because he wanted that for the look. He said, you know, I don't want to do this all digital. I want it to have a certain look. So he he went out and he did it and he got a film made and he's got distribution in Eastern Europe. And so that's an example of a guy who had a vision and he let me be a small part of it yeah how did you get to how did you fall into it well i met him he, i met him at our film fests and um the, the, the film movies we would show and we you know we talked and we realized that we had the same love for a certain type of things and he said if you know him, his, his voice is hey man I'm, I'm doing this movie man if you want to be in it and i said sure is there a script and he said no just, just make it up you should go along and so my character didn't have any, I knew we knew what the beginning and the end of the goal of my character. I, I play a cop named detective uh, Morgan. And so I'm investigating these murders. And so I get to talk to him and he had some, it was really interesting the way he, he cause I figured we would just be sitting in my office, but he, he had this one scene where we're in my office and the next scene, like we're walking across the parking lot, like we're walk, and he puts the camera quite a bit away and then zooms in on us. He had his camera guy zoom in on it, but for, um, for a film that was written, produced, directed, edited, and scored by one guy, you know, he went out there and he did it and, and got it done. And so I, I applaud him for that. And so it's, I applaud anybody who has a vision and doesn't give up on it and gets it, you know, lives their dream no matter what anyone else might may think about it. But you can find it. You, can, you may be able to find it online. It's called Frankenstein's bloody nightmare it came out in 2006. Um, what are you going to do this year
0: uh, on Sunday?
1: Oh, well, uh, I got a Saturday, there's a Pensacon event in town. And so we're doing, uh, I'm doing that all day Saturday. So we're uh, bringing in a guy named, uh, Mike's bringing in a fellow named Deep Roy. He's been in a bunch of, he was in the Empire Strikes Back. He's been in uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. He's in our first, he's if I could deviate from it, he's in our Dementia 13 episode. The premise is that I'm, I get caught bootlegging a bunch of Deep Roy movies on VHS so Deep Roy sends his manager, his professional manager, a goon, to beat the hell out of me. And it's um, so it's, it was good. Deep Roy was a heck, of, is a heck of a guy to work with. But on Sunday, I know I'm going, uh, my son still wants to go trick-or-treating. He's like 17, and he asked me if he was too old. And I said, hell no, man, you're not at all. So we're going to we're gonna do that. We didn't really decorate the house this year because of personal setbacks and issues that happened. But we're going to still live it in our hearts. though. So. so get it. what about yourself? What are you doing? Uh, we
0: uh, so um, tomorrow night uh, a bunch of us in town are going to, or a bunch of us here at the commune are going to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. One oh, of right. the taverns yes, in town is showing mm-hmm. the Rocky Horror Picture Show, yeah. and they're going to be, they're coming, they're bringing it. They they mm-hmm. have props for us, they have mm-hmm. uh, song leaders yeah. uh, for us, uh, and then we're having a, a Halloween party here on on Sunday night yeah. as well. Yeah.
1: Me add, uh, we used to close out our film fest with Rocky Horror Picture Show, and there would be some. There would be tons of people. And any other year in a non-COVID year, we would be doing Rocky Horror at the local uh, music club. You know, we have a club called Vinyl where we do Rocky Horror, and there's a shadow cast and all kinds of people and costume contests. And so, we're looking forward to getting back into that. And I hope for, hopefully next year it'll be. Uh, a little
0: bit better uh well awesome chip chisholm of nightmare theater uh joins us again here on halloween uh for our solace scary house episode uh (laughs) and we really appreciate the the lists uh and really just all of the the work you do you make it fun and uh that's obviously why you why you do it is that is that Uh -uh. deep passion and fun um and so it's always great to it's always great to have you
1: happy halloween man
0: all right take care chip
2: Hello everyone, this is Damien, and I'm here to tell you that there is an advisory warning for this segment. The following segment will contain a lot of mature themes and sexual jokes. Please proceed with caution. Thank you.
0: Welcome! To house, Halloween <laughs> <laughs> with, com- with communists. That's, I don't fuck it. I didn't know that. That was part of the USSR. <laughs> See, I've always heard. I've always heard when when people are talking about like real right wingers, like real Nazis. They're like, that dude's to the right of Dracula. That's oh like a, a joke that people tell because think about I don't know, how, Vlad
2: the Impaler was like a whole authoritarian
0: man. Yeah, like think about Vlad. Like he, you know, was definitely like Richard Spencer's got nothing on Vlad the Impaler. <laughs> I
3: mean, especially with that like butt fetish, I guess. Mm-hmm.
0: Wait what wait what? <laughs> Well, essentially,
3: that's what it is when you no, impale no. someone through their ass. I mean, like, what else? Do they do it's to? true
0: that there is an <laughs> underlying kind of sexual brutality in uh, in impalement.
3: They use
2: their blood as a dipping sauce. That's pretty hardcore. I think. I mean. think.
3: I would love to talk to him for
0: that. Who an hour is or two. the queen or the prince? The, no, she's she wasn't a queen, but she uh, she was uh, uh, she was royalty, um, and it could have been Hungarian. I can't remember. Um, I'll actually look it up when somebody else is talking. Sorry. She took baths in blood oh, in order to... Oh, I know. Bloody... To...
2: Or Victoria? No, or was it, Mary? it wasn't Victoria. Mary. She was nicknamed Bloody Mary. I yeah. know that. But she did purposely find young okay, women I'm and
0: gonna, girls. Uh, so the uh, the person we were talking about is the Hungarian Countess Elizabeth Bathory.
2: Elizabeth. I uh,
0: was And uh, a Hungarian noblewoman... Uh, who lived between fifteen sixty and sixteen fourteen? Um, a serial killer who took baths in the blood of her victims so that she could live forever. Or it was basically like a milk bath, but it was blood. And uh, and she was uh, eventually uh, uh, put on trial and then locked up in basically in a dungeon. They sealed her uh, in a uh, they sealed her in a room uh, where she where she died. Damn, I' we're um, slipping.
4: Yeah. Oh, well, they do it these days too. So, no, they just has changed. Was it the who did that, where they had like their blood like smeared on their face to look younger?
2: Oh yeah, like people nowadays will actually get um their own blood usually. Yeah. And they'll have someone separate the plasma from like the rest of the stuff, and I think that's what they use on their skin because it's supposed to have some sort of chemical in it that um, rejuvenates skin cells.
0: There's so no when matter, Derek says he's going to sell his plasma,
2: the
0: question is <laughs> what is Derek actually doing And is
2: it even his blood? Are no. we sure it's not um is the he adrenochrome from abortions? Mm-hmm. Maybe she,
3: Maybe he's sending a secret supply to Kanye West's house. I mean, it's not that far. It's from true. Vietnam.
0: It's just. I mean, it's. I mean, it's it is. It's about. It's over six hours, but dang. Uh, See, but I, uh,
2: I would support your statement if it weren't for the fact that him and Kim got divorced.
0: And he's selling his ranch. He's out. Oh, exactly. oh really? I thought he was even part of it. No. I well, he's. I, that's what I. I all I heard is that he's. He's on his way out, and he's selling his ranch. It might be that he's keeping part of it.
4: Hello and welcome to the Soliscarity House 2021 for our annual Halloween special. Yeah.
2: Bleu, bleu, bleu. <laughs> bleu, bleu.
4: This week we are going to talk about various indigenous and local folklore. Yay. And I will start with a quote from Barry J. Anceletta, Professor of French and Folklore at the University of Louisiana and Lafayette. It says, very
2: southern of you. <laughs>
4: Trust me, you don't want me to do the Southern thing. Wonderful people. <laughs> I will. <laughs>
3: the Southerns, the wonderful people are doing the, the,
2: They have good food. Yes. <laughs> the it's called Good for the Soul for a reason. Anyways,
4: according to Barry, in one way or another, everyone believes in it. Whether they believe seriously that there is a character who roams the night or is unimportant, they believe in the stories and they believe in the ability to scare people through the stories. It becomes a way of connecting one generation to the
0: next. I, don't you have a story, uh, Angel? Oh, oh, next to me. Okay, I can
3: see where you're going. All right. Well, everyone knows the classic of La Llorona. They've just recently mis- mis- made a movie about it, like a year ago. Of course, translating to the weeping woman or the crying mother. And it's a story that most people know. Of course, um, the common interpretation being this woman that fell in love with a rich man, got two children from from him, and was treated poorly throughout the marriage, and where. His her husband every time he visited would ignore her and only focus on the two children. From from it first started with days that he would go out not come back and meet her mo- the mother of the children and just completely ignore her. And then it turned two weeks and sadly two years. Up to the point that he she stopped he stopped showing up altogether for like ever. Up until one day when the Maria took her two children out and saw that the her husband, well you can say ex at this point because like who lives their wife for years at this point, Um, with another woman. The husband realized that they were there and only acknowledged the two children that were with her. He completely ignored her and through that frustration and the constant abuse and ignoring from her husband, she snapped, of course, like any sane person would with that piece of crap. And sadly, through that that snapping and, and led to the killing of the children as her frustration was too great. She w- tried to save them in the last moment, but unsuccessful, of course, and let herself to drown herself. And thinking in her death she would find peace when she reached the pearly gates of heaven in the Catholic orientation, she was unable to enter as she had to be-, be there with her two children. So she was punished to be wandering on earth to find her two dead children's spirits for eternity. And it's used as a common folklore about Mexican cultures to warn kids not to go out at night and not to disrespect your family. But there's a lesser known iteration from the past where it came from the Mexica culture in the Aztecs and where this representation of La Llorona was initially our spirit of the, of the earth. I have a terrible pronunciation with my native language, sadly, because I was never taught it, but her name is Cucuola and she was the representation of the earth for us. She brought the duality to Catacuala, which is the hero our midst. he is the fifth son and her duty was basically she was the, our protector she was the like our spiritual mother. she was the spiritual mother of childbearing of course as she will raise many spiritual ancestors that we hold like the spirit of the storm and the spirit of the water. One day she was quite tired of her child of the t- storm left her left them out of nowhere in the jungles and realizing her mistake later she came back to find them. But it turns out at the same place that she left him, there was just a sacrificial dagger. And she weeped and weeped and weeped until it filled up one of our reservoirs that we get that filled up a collection of islands that we set up our main island, that my main city in. And it's just all filled with her tears continuously. That's why that's like the rain comes down during thunder seasons. It's mostly her weeping for her child. That's the first part of the legend. Later down the line, it was also to bring an omen to the end of the empire and that once it's, she is seen it will be known that the end of the empire is soon or has approaching and during the days when the colonizers of spain came in invading the other indigenous tribes themselves they have come to many other local tribes witness a woman covered in white gowns with the body half of a snake and half of the earth, walking and weeping, knowing that her children will die, the children the children being the Mexica people. At first, the Mexica hoped this was a lie, a misconception, but the priestess uh, that's dedicated to her saw for himself the truth and know that was the end of the empire. And so from there on, once the Empire Day, many signs have been shown to her, weeping for the for the children that she lost during the end of the empire. And that's the, the origins derived from the Mexica people of the Yair
2: I can officially say I am not only a little bit scared of this, of like what people interpret La Llorona to be today, but now I'm a little depressed.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's the movie I want to see, is uh, the, the heraldry of the end of Empire. That wouldn't be a horror movie. I mean, the, like, uh, I don't know, like,
3: movie. she is supposed to be terrifying with the body of a snake, and she's supposed to be technically not the most beautiful woman to ever exist, but... True. ...in any case... Uh, <laughs> Either
2: way, plenty of Mexican and Hispanic children will continue to be scared for ages to come.
0: I was gonna say, there's one of my stories also is where a, um, a uh, spectral entity is used to scare children and Seems make be them common. behave and that does seem like a common trope. It right? is a
2: common trope amongst every culture. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. we're going to make up a monster that will beat your ass. <laughs>
2: it's like, when I can't be there to beat your ass in the middle of the night, this monster will be there too.
0: The <laughs> ultimate deterrent. <laughs> Especially the spirit of like child Eldrin. <laughs> yeah, yeah. well that that's a huge theme with this in both. The sort of more, I guess, authentic ancient iteration and then sort of the catholic iteration that comes later is, is the this god this sort of goddess concept right
3: yeah it's just, it's it's just the spiritual ancestor of like children and all that stuff it's like an ideal like, that it's, it's heavily used to make sure like like a way to condition the children to respect the past and all that stuff mm-hmm.
2: well also isn't disrespecting your parents considered a sin worthy of death so like it was one way to like tell children like if you're disrespectful to your parents la llorona might come around and like kill you or whatever creature existed in the culture, um, and would ultimately prevent children from disrespecting their parents without trying to scare them with the church first.
0: You're going to love my example of that, but...
2: Would you care uh, to tell us? Um,
0: riffing on the idea of scaring disobedient children is the very white version of that. <laughs> uh, and that is um, hugging Molly, uh, Hugging Molly, uh, but it's always spelled just with an N. Huggin, Huggin Molly. It honestly um,
2: sounds like a creature from like an indie horror game. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly.
0: Or that, or someone trying to uh, s- a satire on flogging Molly is the first thing that I uh, that I thought. But it's not. It's uh, it's very uh, uh, specific to Alabama, really, Ooh. and the sort of Chattahoochee. Uh, kind of region in general and and as far as we know white settlers uh, in that region so hug and molly is a specter a female ghost basically and dating back at least to the beginning of the 20th century but maybe further back i couldn't really find any references before the early 20th century but it all uh, appears to originate in a town called abbeville alabama and hug and molly is a giant female appearing figure She's dressed all in black. Uh, She's like seven feet tall. Uh, She wears what's been described as a wide-brimmed hat. So that could be a witch's hat, but it could be some other kind of hat. I'm not sure. And what she does in Abbeville and in other parts of Alabama is appear to children if they're out at night. Uh, So then obviously the the moral is don't go out at night. Huggin' Molly is going to find you. But here's the deal. This is what makes this a very different kind of version and somewhat more uh, genteel version if you will of this so she never harms the children instead she hugs them and screams in their ear
2: you know like another mother would. <laughs> exactly
0: like th- like this is such t- this is this is absolutely a toxic relationship with your with your mother that's going on <laughs> molly's gonna if out at night molly's gonna grab you and hug you and scream in your ear there's going to be some psychological harm but some probably not and maybe some eardrum damage but otherwise no physical harm and uh, apparently the, you know this this is still in some parts of Alabama this is still an expression uh, you know b- better come in huggin molly's going to get you and there are different versions of who this was uh, certainly a ghost in any case maybe the ghost of a woman who'd lost an infant uh, and 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 that's a common theme about uh, female specters and female like monsters and things like that is that they were women who, who lost children and deals with that tragedy by hugging lost children or children that she thinks are lost because they're out at night i know i well, you know you put it
2: like that I That's know so sad
0: damien's damien's <laughs> lower lip is quivering <laughs> uh a little bit yeah it's 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 really it's a weird poignant story that's why i picked it um uh and then another there's another theory or another origin story that she was a professor at the old southeast alabama agricultural school uh, who was trying to keep her students safe by keeping them off the streets at night so these are kind of modern almost modernist kind of takes right um Anyway, there's a couple of books that people can read about this and other Chattahoochee kind of legends. Uh, One is um, by Alan Brown. It's called The Haunting of Alabama. And there's another book by Michelle Smith called Legends, Lore, and True Tales of the Chattahoochee. And, and then the last thing I want to say is that the, the weirdest variation on Hug and Molly's origin story is in an entry in the Oxford Encyclopedia entitled The Gay South. And there's a writer named Jerry Watkins who suggested that the name Hug and, Hug and Molly might be a weird importation of the expression for gay men in London who visited what are called, what were called in the 19th century Molly houses, which were basically gay bars. Nice. So the gay bars in London were called Molly houses, and the the gays that uh, that frequented them uh, were called uh, hugging hugging mollies or hugging mollies. Um, and that's back in the back in the 19th century. And you know a lot of British, you know a lot of the of the settler uh, migration into the deep south was. Uh, british uh, folks and so that's certainly possible too and that is the story of hug and molly
2: and how the british are unoriginal yeah and then
0: the the incredible unoriginal and rather weak and milk toast uh kind of she hugs you okay i'm gonna
4: say this right now the entire time you're saying this i literally could not stop thinking about how this would be the perfect name for a doll just like Uh a large doll that you get for your child and it's just like then you talk about like hugging and screaming here is like, okay, so this would be a really weird like screamer and like like an indie game with a
2: doll.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and, the, and I thought about the screamers as a kind of category of monsters too, yeah. right?
2: I first thought of the new indie game, like Poppy Playtime. Um, but on top of that, I was also thinking, you know, like, you know what? I haven't been hugged by anybody else other than my partner for the longest time. Maybe I should just go out to Alabama and wear some earmuffs. Maybe I could get some attention. <laughs> so relating back to tales from native peoples, like culture and stuff, you know, Angel has his stuff related to the Mashika people. Um, and this one was kind of interesting to me as someone whose family origins do kind of go back to the Celtic Irish and although it does not originate with the Celtic Irish um, it actually originates from the French Celtics this tale actually did come about because of French settlers in the Louisiana area that went on to be the Cajun people and the creature that the Cajun people still talk about to this day are the Luton if they're females they're Lutine if that's pronouncing it correctly and the Luton Were creatures similar to hobgoblins and brownies, which were fairies who I prefer to call the sheath, because calling, you know, those kinds of creatures in any Celtic mythology fairies is essentially calling them dirty little bastards. So, oh, well, okay. so calling them the Sheed is a more appropriate term and a way to not piss them off. But they were similar to that of hobgoblins and brownies, a type of Sheed that existed in Celtic tribes, who were known to live in different parts of the East Coast in the United States, who mainly lived around the Cajun people. They are known to live in human houses. They typically don't reside in much other places unless there's not really many humans around. Although some of these interpretations of Luton across the United States will usually have like better, de- like better depictions of them them as like good versus evil creatures some who were good who would bless the people in the house and some who were bad who would play mischievous pranks this usually was an interpretation specific to people in quebec canada but for the cajun people these were fucking little demons And although they are less similar to hobgoblins and brownies in the sense of they have their own personalities and how they bless the person in the house, one trait that they do share is that they can choose whether or not you see them. Some say that it's their hat that gives them the power of invisibility. Some others will say that they're able to access pocket quote-unquote dimensions within the house, and that's how they're able to go across the house without you seeing them. Luton's true form is believed to be that of a small dwarf, but people have yet to confirm if this is true, as they can take on multiple, many different forms involving hobgoblins, elves, white cats, and other strange creatures. Many are not really sure about their origins or who they are, mainly because of their reclusive behavior, and many interpretations of, of them being Sheed are more, are more speculation and theories, rather than confirmed cultural info. Although other cultures in the United States have different interpretations, as I've said, Lutons in Cajun folklore are believed to be the souls of unbaptized children. Which is actually seen with a lot of other creatures in mm-hmm, Cajun mm-hmm. folklore. <laughs> Which I guess is just another way to scare mothers into, like, as soon as their baby is born. DUNK THAT BABY IN Oops. LIKE A CHICKEN NUGGET IN HONEY MUSTARD SAUCE. <laughs> 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 have you seen videos of, like, Catholic priests, like, baptizing babies? Like, they just dunk them, like, they're trying to torture them.
3: or non the pandemic. <laughs> they have to shoot them in the head, but... It...
2: Yeah, with a little water gun. <laughs> like...
0: <laughs> I mean, ranch, please.
2: <laughs> I can. I no, can, I actually I can
0: prefer honey that. mustard as well. But yeah. both. We need both. Honey
2: sriracha. mustard is sweet. Yeah.
3: Yeah. But sriracha. if I put some sriracha in that honey mustard, all fuck of
0: you. the she makes that it. Fuck you. <laughs> all of the practitioners of honey mustard are, are warring against the <laughs> practitioners of ranch. It's an okay. internecine struggle.
2: And then there's the weird third party sriracha. Yeah, wait, exactly. Where buffalo like line, line in this? Chart? <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel like that's more like chicken wings. though. I'm a buffalo hoe for anything. Okay, country. fair enough. Um, but yeah, this belief, though in Catholic perspective, is pretty prevalent amongst most what people consider fairies. Um, the Lutons, at least the ones that are interpreted to be bad, are very much an annoyance, causing stuff like property damage um, and various nuisances. They love to spoil milk and cheese to spook farm animals to braid or knot the hair of horses and sleeping people, Hmm. as well as to cut hair from sleeping victims, and delight in stealing objects only to place them in the most unlikely of places. Though they will never do something to kill people per se, their actions can have horrible consequences for that of humans, including one trend that's more specific to northern Celtic tribes, um, whether they moved or not, which are called fairy locks, but they're not seen as a good thing. Like, getting them is considered bad luck, and it's even worse to try and get them out. (laughs) Um, And there's actually a couple of ways to deal with them. A lot of other tales like to say, like, just avoid them at all costs, but when it comes to that of the sheed, as it applies to Lutins from Cajun folklore, salt is believed to keep them from entering your homes, well, like the sheed usually in other tribes. Placing a line of salt on window frames and doorways is believed to keep them from crossing it. Iron also is, or is said to also keep them at bay if hmm. they apply by sheed rules. However, some are known to hide in nooks and crannies that aren't visible to the human eye. Um, so it is not necessarily a complete deterrent from keeping them out of your house. So although they may not be quite as terrifying as La Llorona or and Molly, I don't know. I would be pretty pissed and terrified if I knew that one was living in my house, specifically these kinds of lootants, not so much the-, the Quebec interpretation.
0: If some little twerps were braiding the tails on my horses or the manes on my horses, <laughs> Uh, just to fuck with my head like that. It's
2: like who the fuck that, braided my yeah horse? exactly.
0: Like can you imagine going out and like that's how that's these psychological legends start torture is like somebody who's like oh Grady got, got his got his horse hair all braided.
2: I don't know. I kind of like that. Someone did it for me.
0: Yeah, it's like thank you. It's like Honestly, cool. Now I
2: can. Do and they're it's like, true. like they're rubbing their gre- like their grubby little hands behind the barn and they're like ha ha ha. This is gonna make him go wild and then like the guy goes up and is like oh someone actually did me a favor and the fucker's just like it's like a,
0: it's like a Warner brothers cartoon i mean meanwhile i'm
3: probably be hating it because i hate anything to do with like braiding my hair because it hurts with all the gel i put on it it's like scarred for life at this
2: point at this point they might just knot it because there's no way to braid it oh true i have to say though
4: the way that they talk about misplacing objects i just couldn't help but think so wait it may not be my
2: ADHD, it may just that's be little bastards are was... hiding in my walls.
0: Can we blame them for white people having dreadlocks?
2: That's all on, that's all on it, them. <laughs> it, it gives oh, white people an excuse, don't do that. <laughs> okay, that's
0: true, that's true. It's all on them. You are not off the hook. They're not having dreadlocks actually. at that point. <laughs>
2: Like stop it with your cultural appropriation. <clears throat> it doesn't even look good on them. I'm gonna say this right now. They right. have Grinch fingers every single time.
4: I was <laughs> <laughs> just gonna say it looks like rotting hay half the time when I see it. Uh, like I no, there's this one white boy in my class with like like full like ginger hair and everything. Mm-hmm. Like it was just and he like he tried ginger
0: locks. To,
4: yeah, so it's just like, it was like like
0: sideshow Bob.
4: But it looked like it looked Which... like it looked like like. Drying clay coming out of his head, and like he had a doll wearing wear one of those stupid, like a Jamaican hat, and like you only see
2: like a like, oh, Bob no. Marley thing. <laughs> Was he
4: trying to copy people from like a specific part of Africa have... who like use
2: clay to keep
4: their hair protected? I have no fucking idea. I just see him in the hallway and he's smiling. I'm like,
2: You look white people, trash. Are... white people are weird. Yeah, I mean, he might as well join much.
3: the island boys and what the, how the fuck he looks
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right,
4: my creature is then the boo hag. From... Boo! The Gullah people. I'm doing the
2: boo hag from the Gullah people. And considering I'm a Charleston native, this basically scares the ever-living shit out of me.
4: Because you should be, because according to legend, they're very similar to vampires. But unlike vampires, they literally feed off your breath instead of your blood by literally getting on top of you and riding you in your sleep. Take that as you will. (laughs) Don't give them rule 34. (laughs) You don't think they haven't done it already?
2: Actually, yes. <laughs> exactly. It is a... F- I'm going to let you say that, because...
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, please continue, because I'm trying to figure out if I've ever actually had to deal with any of these creatures.
4: Okay. You, you'll you know them mostly because they have no skin, thus they're completely red. Sometimes they'll, be, they'll like be noted as having, like, blue veins pulsing as they move around. But either way... so. In order to be hidden among people during the day, they'll steal a victim's skin and use it to hide out in. So you'll be just walking around in public in someone else's skin and you'll never know. You may think that's your neighbor John, but no. It's a boohag.
2: John is missing now. Are
0: they, so I've seen a lot of movies where people, where where creatures get into other people's skin. I mean like the body snatchers. Yeah, Uh, but I was also thinking about um, uh, uh, Night of the Ghouls, or Night of the Creeps, sorry. Night of the Creeps, I'm thinking about, I think this happens in, uh, I'll get back to you, Uh, but it's this sort of, you're in somebody's skin and so you're acting all weird. Do they act weird? Or do they act like just perfectly? They'll, normal? They'll act
4: like normal people. Like you will never know. Yeah, they just—it's—it's it's not even—they're not even taking over their body. They're literally stealing your flesh as like a suit. Oh damn! Like a nasty little flesh suit to squelch around in.
3: Kind of could the Scooby Doo movie. You remember that with the Scrappy Doo?
2: <laughs> if you've ever yeah, won- something <laughs> like that. You if you've like ever that. wondered what it was like, what it would look like if humans had no skin. Just wait until your flesh gets snatched up by a boohag.
3: I mean, it kind of fits with that weird sexual nature without Daphne and like. I'm, like,
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. I no. don't know how you got there. <laughs> I'm sorry, but this like this isn't when, even
4: sexual. <laughs> no reason.
0: Because like, it's it, technically they would like with, when you
3: describe them riding on a person. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's. That true. a lot. They
2: would ride on your dress. See you this. Mm. See, this <laughs>
3: Okay. And that's
0: why Scooby
2: do things. This is why we can't have nice things. <laughs> how about I move on to how they
4: get into your house? Yes, says, please. Once they determine, once they find a victim that's suitable for riding, they'll literally gain access through small cracks, crevices, or holes in your house. They just sort of slip right in.
0: Boy, well, good thing we don't have any of those. <laughs> <you know>, Solidarity <laughs> We yes.
4: don't even live on the East Coast. I guess it's a good thing we don't live by any swamps. Fair.
0: True.
2: We just got. Really I mean,
0: there is that bog thing out there, the yeah, weird thing that the dogs, dogs run to.
2: Hide. Yeah, but I think we've got other creatures to as worry As long as there are not <coughs>
0: alligators in there, it doesn't matter.
4: Exactly. So but anyways, once they get into the house, they'll position themselves over sleeping victim and suck their breath. This act <laughs> renders the victim helpless and induces a deep dream-filled sleep. If they keep you alive, they'll literally just take your energy and leave. But... If you try to fight back, they'll take your skin and use it as a skin suit. So you're fucked either way. Yes. But as they're doing it, they'll make you suffer. Damn. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but <clears throat> either way they'll take your energy fly off, and then they have to return to their skin before dawn or be forever trapped without it.
0: So what do they what do they look like trapped without skin?
4: Well, the disgusting red pulsing baby bodies
2: that they you know all the flesh okay. and muscle without yeah. the skin. Trump mm-hmm. voters. Please! <laughs>
3: that's, what look, that's what they look like when you tell them bite
4: But the good news is at least when they wake up, if you survive, you'll just be short of breath, but usually they just feel tired. And people have thought theorized that this might actually be connected to sleep paralysis and like you know like the jokes about the sleep paralysis demon. That's the mm-hmm. horrific things. They're thinking that that might actually be an explanation
2: for sleep paralysis demons. I don't know. The last time I had sleep paralysis, <laughs> I ended up with Jeff the Killer somehow. <laughs> okay, so you got a weird blue hag who literally murdered some cosplayer <laughs> then. Well, either that or they managed to find Jeff the Killer, finally fucking put an end to his cringy ass, and decided, so. you know what? This is the depiction I'll have.
4: <laughs> I mean, either way, it's a win win. Yeah. But yeah, <clears throat> like.
2: I guess if it's one way to interpret sleep paralysis, you know,
4: in South Carolina. But the good news is, there is one one tradition that the best way to keep a hag out is to lay a broom of, in front of your door. Because when the boo hag slips into your house through the keyhole, she'll see the broom, and she'll have to stop to count every straw on the broom. And by the time she's done, it'll be dawn, so she'll have to return to her skin. <laughs> Just lay out some sesame seeds. That'll take an endless amount of time. Yeah, I've noticed that it's also like the vampire where there's a weird counting obsession. I've seen a lot of yeah. like older ones.
0: Yeah, they did that. That was how they uh, described the vampire in X-Files, uh, in the X-Files episode with the vampire. And, uh, I didn't know X-Files had vampires. It was just one episode, but yeah. Mulder took um, a uh, <sighs> like, uh, whole box of toothpicks and then just threw the toothpicks all over the room damn. and the vampire looked and was like god damn it <laughs> and, uh, and then sat and then you know sat down on the floor and started that's amazing uh, Started picking I up all of the all, all of the toothpicks and then was easily assailable mm-hmm. from that position, but couldn't do anything about it because they were obsessed with uh, the the toothpicks. Yeah, I've seen like a
4: lot of lore where they'll say like throw either grain or rice on the ground, and that's supposed to like
2: rice is plentiful in yeah, South exactly. Carolina. Just throw it on the ground, be good. It's a waste of rice, but I mean, I guess it's better than like possibly dying. I mean, it depends on how you want to go. Do you want to go out riding or not? <laughs> Did you anticipate for this many dirty jokes when you were researching the boo-hags? I mean, if anything, you could just give them some boo- sugar
3: cubes and so once you once you hit them, it just crumble into pieces it's like, suck it, bitch.
2: But if you try to attack them, they will steal your skin.
3: Yeah. Suck them. <laughs> well, it's not necessarily attacking them, it's like, I didn't attack it; the cubes did.
4: <laughs> I don't know, they might take offense to that. I don't think the courts would defend you either. <laughs> <laughs> This is going to get even worse because apparently there's an expression in South Carolina called Don't let the hag ride ya. <laughs> <laughs> Take it as you will. Mhm. Okay. We have a fun one with a man named Bobby. I, I read that Bobby story. We start with the story with Bobby, a man who has bad luck when it comes to finding a bride. He's proposing and, ex- and engaged to a few, but all would get cold feet and leave before the wedding. Damn, Poor Bobby. no wonder
2: he's lonely. Yeah.
4: It gets so bad he literally sits on a barrel of pickles and tries to his father and says, I'm never gonna find a woman. He's like, no 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 Bobby, you'll find a woman one day. He's like, aren't you sure? Are you sure about that? Sure about that, Daddy? (laughs) (laughs) Didn't mean to do that. So anyway.
3: I thought you meant something
4: else by sits on pickles. (laughs) Okay, good, okay, that's fair. Angel, <laughs> hey I'm gonna ask you politely to
2: shut your mouth now.
4: <laughs> Anyways, one day, an old woman who's come to shop at their store talks to Bobby's pa about this, mentioning that she has a daughter who's looking for a husband, and they both agree to pair them up at the next dance in town. Bobby has, bo- Bobby's papa has him dress up in the nicest clothes, and he's like, I don't know. I'll never meet anyone. He's like, no, no, no. Your luck's about to change. And as soon as he meets that girl, he's like, dang, she's perfect. She's I, beautiful.
0: She seems so comfortable in her own skin. <laughs> <laughs> See, with all,
3: the, with all the skin references, I, I just wonder if I should have mentioned that that one moment with Mashika People like sacrifice a princess and wore her skin. <laughs> I'm debating in front of his dad.
4: Oh my god. <laughs> Anyways, they dance all night together and as soon as the sun rises, they're like, dang, we're perfect for each other. Let's get married.
0: Is, doesn't it always start that way? No, they won't. Really. I mean, that's still, that's still starting with every military marriage, doesn't mm-hmm. it?
4: <laughs> the only problem was he wanted to do it in front of a priest and she's like, no, we should just do it in front of a judge. He's like, but but the priest is up the road. It's like, but I want to judge, because it's easier. And he's like,
0: ah, okay. It's the whole evading the priest thing, which makes it another punitive kind of tale, right? Well, I also mean, that these... and the
2: fact that people would discourage like their kids from marrying non-Christians. Mm-hmm.
4: We gotta remember this for later, guys.
2: <laughs> That's a tool that'll help us later. <laughs> However, he
4: gives it and they get married the next day. Talk about a shotgun wedding.
2: At least there was no baby
4: involved. Mm. Mm. Something else is gonna be coming. <laughs> and they spend the first wonderful day as a couple. She cooks, she cleans, she serves him as any woman should. Oh god, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> <laughs> Though the next day, he wakes up and finds her acting very strange and refusing to say what's going on. She fe- He fears that, oh my gosh, she's already cheating on me. And she's like, how dare you! Back off! And he's like, "But, but, no! Shut up!" Okay, honey. Ah, <laughs> uh,
3: yes, the simp.
2: The simp. <laughs> he's a beta cug
4: male. Oh, definitely because this happens over and over. This
2: whole just cycle the... just keeps happening. Just wakes up, sees that his wife's acting strange. Do they
0: do they make up? I mean, is it do they like reconcile, or does she just get worse and worse?
4: I think it's just like. She just sort of gets just angry over and over, and she's he's like, please stop this, and he's like, just just let it go, and I'll, I'll act like a good wife. And he's like, okay. At least that's what it seems like. So, Bobby eventually does get sick of this, and goes to a conjuring conjure woman, who's an expert in Huda magic, the supernatural, and herbs. Fun. <laughs> yes. And he's like, listen, my wife's acting kind of odd, and she keeps, like, just waking up really strange in the morning, she's like, well, congratulations! You married a boo hag.
0: You dumbass.
4: <laughs> he's like, he's like yeah, that can't be right. He's like, okay, watch it. Okay, stay up then. Stay up that night. As soon as you go to bed, pretend to be asleep and wait for her to do something. So he does, and he literally watches her take off her skin and reveal nothing but muscles and pulsing veins underneath. And he's like, oh. And nearly barfs at the sight of her as she crawls out the
2: window. Way to be (laughs) subtle. Way to be subtle, Bob.
0: Bobby?
4: He's like, damn it, Bobby.
0: God damn it, Bobby. (laughs) That boy ain't right.
4: (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, the next day he goes back and she's like, so what'd you see? And he describes, he's like, yep, I told you. Got a boo hag. Have fun getting rid of that one. Have fun divorcing her. Yeah. The married Boo Hag, calling her essentially what is equivalent to a witch and a shapeshifter and warns that if he keeps her around, that she will take him and be eaten by the Boo Daddy. For all the Boo- <laughs> Yeah, apparently in this version, Boo Hags take you to feed their Boo
2: Daddies. <laughs> Interesting name.
4: Yes. The worst part is that these daddies really love to eat your flesh and bones.
2: I will use your bones to make my bread. Yes, daddy!
3: (laughs) (laughs) Don't tell the war enthusiasts, though. Right.
2: But this was around a time, though, in which, like, you could not get divorced from your partner because that wasn't allowed in the eyes of God. So, like, what was he just supposed to do? Hope that he got rid of her and then never marry again? His worries came to fruition.
4: Oh, don't worry. The good news is that the conjure woman does have a solution. We're essentially telling him to paint the windows and doors with a magical blue paint to keep her from entering, except one window. I've heard about
2: this before, mm -hmm. actually.
4: Yeah, then he's told to put salt and pepper in the skin that she leaves behind and go to bed. (laughs) So when this happens, she leaves and he paints the doors and windows, salts the skin, and waits. So when she comes through the only window, that isn't painted that he literally nailed an inch wide so she couldn't get through as easily. So she goes in, but by the time that she gets through, the sun is rising, so she must rush to her skin. And then when she gets in, she's literally burned from the inside out by the salt and pepper, and she jumps through the window, shattering it, and hitting the ground. And as she's running, the sun rises, and she hits as soon as she reaches the swamp, explodes into tiny pieces, and is eaten by alligators for breakfast. Yay, alligators, they have a use. (laughs) (laughs) And as the ending goes, without a wife again, he is content to remain a bachelor and never goes looking for a bride again. However, he makes a bunch of money in oil, and the women now start chasing him. But, that's for another story. (laughs)
0: Is that real or did you <laughs> just make that last part of
2: No, that's the way it goes in the Oh story. my god, that's yes. That's so funny. That's literally how it ends with it. I go, can see like, um, what's his name? Elon Musk using this as like a rich person story. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, never marry a poor person and also you'll go on to be making big money.
0: Uh, yeah, so the, uh, the, so the ape. So, and this is, so this is halfway serious and that is that, you know, we talked a lot in prepping for this segment about what is sort of in the realm of indigenous uh, legend and indigenous myth uh, versus you know what are settler myths and the, the fact is that in almost every case the settlers are stealing something and in some cases it's more blatant than others so my next monster is called the the skunk ape and it's basically a big smelly bigfoot uh, in the swamps of Florida. That's basically, it's, you could call it just smelly, smelly Bigfoot. Um, and... Uh, Tomato juice ain't
2: going to do you no good. <laughs> and
0: so what I was going to say, and it's, and it's the swamps of Florida, so Florida man comes in Oh god. You know, uh, um, a legend. But, exactly. Okay. Uh, but I was going to say that as, you know, if you're researching almost any of these that are Myths or horror, horror or monsters or whatever that are sustained by uh, settler myths—they're almost always, at least somewhat, appropriated from uh, indigenous myths. And so, most most North American monsters have been renamed or reconfigured by European settlers, but have their origins, or at least partially their origins, in indigenous traditions. And, and in some cases, hybrids of. The old world that the settlers came from versus uh, the indigenous, uh, indigenous land. Um, there's even a lake here in Wyoming where the white settlers claimed to have seen a, some kind of Loch Ness monster type serpent. But, it, but, but even that story is also a colonization of a cronation legend about the haunting of a lake by, by a woman, by an ind- indigenous woman. Uh, who lost her love so again sort of these sort of tragedy cycles that play out so anyway i say all that because um the skunk ape also resembles a Seminole legend uh in florida about a bad smelling cannibal giant uh that's sort of in the same area so there's uh you know all these sort of common threads and this is really a Sasquatch legend in some ways. There's this resemblance to these other giant ape-like creatures, various parts of North America, different parts of North America where, where there are Sasquatch or Bigfoot legends. The uniqueness of the skunk ape, obviously, is that it smells awful. Uh, Floridians have reported seeing the skunk ape periodically, including very recently, um, for the at least 200 years, there's an an, there's an alleged a woman took an alleged photograph of one and we've got the link to it which we will put up on the show on the segment um, as well as on our our social media Uh, and then last year an independent documentary was made uh, by a person who i'm sure uh, also deals in cryptocurrency i'm just gonna say it i don't necessarily know for sure but uh but this person sets out to prove Uh, that the skunk ape is real, uh, has all this testimony, has all this sort of argument, uh, it must be real. Um, And the the title of the documentary is The Skunk Ape Lives. So that's original. And the filmmaker indeed sets out to prove that the the skunk ape lives. And so there's these these periodic sightings and smellings, I suppose, of this swamp creature in, in Florida called the skunk ape.
4: Okay, that literally sounded like when you're describing the documentary. So it's literally like any series now that's on History Channel,
2: pretty much. Yeah. Like an episode straight out of Ancient Aliens. Oh God.
4: For sure. sure. They probably
2: have that in Ancient Aliens. They probably do. (laughs) I'm not going to find out. They have an entire episode dedicated to Bigfoot. Yeah, I remember hearing. I'm not saying it's
0: aliens. aliens. (laughs) aliens. (laughs) 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 When I was talking, when I was when I was writing this out, I was like. Well, I wonder um, if, you know, this would be a perfect opportunity to make fun of someone who, among us who smells bad. And then I realized that we're far too cool to do that at Solidarity Collective or that we all just smell bad and that we can't really we don't really notice uh, other people's smells. Uh, but yeah. none of us come close to the. Uh, the the epic smell, uh, epically bad smell of the of the skunk ape.
4: Maybe it fell. On, ooh, you Cat litter. <coughs> Yeah. <laughs>
1: I'm
4: gonna say. Do you exactly. think it fell into like the bog of eternal stench from? Uh, oh yeah. The labyrinth, labyrinth. From and, labyrinth. And that's why it stinks so bad. It was an alien that just got thrown into the labyrinth, but because it was a criminal. Yes, this is all from ancient aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> they
0: took the criminals and put them on a mothership and. Yeah, that's anyway.
4: Like, yeah, that's what they said. What so what's your fun. swamp creature? I don't speak French, I only took one semester. So if I get anything wrong, I would say I'm sorry. Just Let's swallow the I end don't. of every word.
1: Don't,
2: don't apologize continue. to I, yeah. I
4: say, But I won't because they're French. Yes, exactly. I've been there. Don't apologize to the French. French, they don't I, need I, an ego boost. They're what? annoying, I'm gonna you
0: know say what? It. I, for years, people were like, uh, the, you know, they're the rudest people in the world. And then we were tell. I told people when we were gonna go to Paris, and they were like, "Oh, I heard that they that the streets are full of feces and that they're I mean, rude to people." Paris, and like, is. we went. No, we went to Paris, and it was fine. I it could, was just fine. I guess the it people depends. were nice. They all like they all had kids because they're Catholic. So there was thousands of strollers all over and there were parks on every corner and people were nice like one drunk dude tried to assail me at one point Uh, but but that's actually a better track record than i get here
2: yeah but like i think it's the whole like when people talk about like people from foreign countries going to france for the first time Mm because everybody romanticizes paris france and like, especially the Japanese, the Japanese are weird about how much they obsess over oh, like yeah, Paris, France. And yeah, a whole disorder that like once they see, like, depending on where they go in Paris, like if they see like, or if they smell urine in the street, or like but see you, feces. everywhere, or Or like they see how dreary it can actually look most of the time. Like they actually go into like a shock. And like, I, it's probably not feces and like... Um, urine infested, but you know, like you're going to see the occasional turn no matter where you go. It's true. Listen, I'm just going to say this. I did
4: go to Paris and I went on the Eiffel Tower and I got yelled at by a security guard because I didn't climb the stairs fast enough. That happened. I was like, I was literally in high school and like I was with a class, like I was with like this
0: we took group. the elevator. And I
4: have like it chronic pain, and I there was time. there was like no. We had like we had to climb these stairs to get to the elevator, and <laughs> they yelled at us. Well, that's true that you do have
0: all. to go up some stairs to get to the I'm elevator. Gonna say, mm. Anyway, I
4: just learned never climb down the ele- just never climb down the stairs if you're on the Apple Tower. You will be bi- you will be dizzy, and you will regret it.
3: that What if you jump off of <laughs> it
4: though? No. <laughs> you mean like the one guy who was testing out his parachute and died?
3: Yeah, it worked this time.
2: <laughs> Shit. That's what they always say
4: <laughs> Okay Now that we're done, like, mocking the French as, Fuck the French as, as
0: one should One is never done
4: <clears throat> Anyways Rougarou, my monster is a Rougarou or the came <laughs> We're the Cajun we're <laughs> werewolf. Now, before we start off, we're going to do some more French insulting by talking about the 16th century France. Nice. Now, before. We- so, if we want to understand the Cajun werewolf, we have to understand the French werewolf, where it came from, or what they called it, the Loop Gurus. Why are you laughing? Loop
2: de loop. I mean we have pretty ridiculous pronunciations in Irish, but even I would burst out laughing at the first mention of that
3: name. <laughs> yeah,
4: that's apparently what how they that's how they say werewolf in French. But anyways, French is weird. Really, yeah. You know, back in the sixteenth century they had a wonderful they had a wonderful tradition of taking weird and Weird people and outsiders who acted strange and putting them on trial for being werewolves. So
2: the opposite of like the witch trials. Like about the same, just like their cousin. <coughs>
4: yes, that's why it. Cousins yeah. of witch trials. Yeah, think of the US, think of the US witch trials, but earlier and much longer spanning. Anyways, they take the weirdo, put them on public trial, and then they would all vote that yes, this person is a werewolf because they didn't want to be called werewolves themselves. Why would you? We all know what happens to them. But another the part of the fun tradition was they would get they would make sure that you went to church by saying, werewolves would eat you if you didn't go to mass. Ooh, another boogeyman parents came up with. Or you'd be turned into a werewolf. Yeah. Apparently if you Just didn't so follow you know. Yeah, apparently, yeah, if you didn't go to mass, you didn't follow the rules of Lend for seven years, you'd be turned into a werewolf. Sounds like a
3: good deal.
2: <laughs> you mean absolute <laughs> freedom for seven years? <laughs>
4: Exactly, but yeah, that's what they would tell the kids: go to church, or you become a werewolf. I've heard better ways to scare kids into going to church. Yeah, that's like you know, either you'd be turned into a werewolf, or you'd be stolen away and stolen away by them in the middle of the night. There'd
3: be a great it's like a uh, it, in, in which case
0: you would either get eaten or just yeah, big. It, 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 it. In which case, you would become a werewolf. Exactly.
2: I don't know, I mean, I'm pretty sure most people aren't aware they're werewolves, so I mean, like, if I'm not even conscious at night anyway, and I turn into a werewolf for that, well, that's my concern.
4: I don't know, but because of this, when they finally went to the United States, they took it with
2: them, and that's how we got... the Rougarou. How do you spend three months on the ocean, and not realize that you brought a fucking werewolf with you?
4: Hey, hey, hey. Catholics. (laughs) Catholics. <laughs> well, I mean, the. <laughs>
3: <laughs> what? How?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, the Catholics are also good at hiding pedophiles. Exactly, <laughs> that's what I'm saying. If you yeah. can hide a
4: pedophile for years, how hard
2: would it be to hide a werewolf for
4: three months? Yeah, but,
2: like, werewolves are, like, non discriminatory in who they attack, and, like, you're stuck on a single boat for three months. Like you're bound to figure out if like who's a werewolf and like immediately kill them or throw know, them, over know,
3: them over I don't know. I know. a pretty hairy. You got to say that. You got the big chest. But well,
2: then again, they also brought over like vampires yeah. supposedly in Louisiana. So
4: in the Cajun myth, it might be kind of explained because they're not pure werewolves. Uh uh-huh. There are some instances where they're actually considered shape shifters, and this woman named Laura McKnight once wrote <coughs> in the Huma Today. Recounted a tale in 1971 Louisiana Folklore Society publication where The Regu appears as a calf struck by a motorist on the highway And when the driver got out of the vehicle, the calf vanished and an uninjured man, apparently the werewolf, was walking away from the spot where the creature was hit That was an open opportunity for dinner and he did not take it Exactly
2: That is like a waste of meat, man Exactly
4: And they say that the name that they changed is supposed to make it easier for the French-English mixture to be easier. But I'm kind of iffy on that one. They also have a really weird spelling of it where it's R-O-U-X-G-A-R-O-U-X, so... We all have fun here. This is why
2: I don't like the French language. This is the same language that like... This is the same language that can't differentiate between les poissons, fish, and les poissons, as in poison. Or that makes you add to get a bigger number. Can you tell I hate the French? You have one left. Well, to make it worse, apparently
4: they created a legend that apparently if you're turned into one, you go under a hundred and one day curse unless you transfer the curse over to someone else. So like the cheese touch. <laughs> yeah. But much worse. Because you're literally you're literally traveling for 101 days, and if you speak about it to anyone, THEY get turned into a werewolf. What if you <laughs> DON'T?! You literally end- during the day, you're your human self, but at night, you just shapeshift and go around hunting for, like, people and animals in, like, the swamps. Whatever you can <laughs> get. Exactly. And apparently the only way to protect yourself is to lay 13 objects on your door, because these creatures are so dumb and bloodthirsty, they can only count to 12. So once Man. it reaches thirteen, it gets confused. So it spends all day, all night counting
2: until it's Trump daytime works. again. You just, <laughs> you just described me.
0: <laughs> I'm sorry. No. I, I didn't mean to imply.
2: No, you're fine. <laughs> it's accurate
4: either way. But, yeah, it's like the okay. like, very. They're just they're just so easy to confuse. It's worse than the book. <laughs> Why are all
0: these monsters so dumb?
2: I don't know, but it's like... They probably have ADHD.
4: (laughs) But apparently it's so... It's like a so well-known way to prevent them that... A distillery in Louisiana made a rum named off the creature... Called the Rougarou Thirteen Pennies. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently it's really popular in Louisiana because... There's a festival in it. There's a zoo that has a exhibit of them which includes a statue of the creature in its, all its swampy glory. And apparently the New Orleans Pelicans originally thought of changing their name from the Hornets to the Rougaroos, instead of the Pelicans.
0: The Charlotte Rougaroos? Well, no, that's a pretty Or no, was it the name? New Orleans Pelicans? Pel- it was the New Orleans
2: Rougaroos? Yeah, that's actually very fitting though, I would have loved to see that. Yeah. I,
0: I would be, I would be a fan so fast. Yes.
2: And so we're gonna go right back to Appalachia. And this one is a bit of a mixed bowl because this is a creature that is not necessarily too well known as, you know, it's a very very mixed creature in terms of folklore because there's a lot of people who discuss it, who warn people of these types of creatures, but then there's others who say they grew up in Appalachia and never, ever heard of them. So it really does depend on who you heard it from and if you heard it at all and these are not deers there is no proper name they're just referred to as not deers are they are, are, are
0: they symbolized by the little curvy knot symbol and then like a deer
2: I, have no clue. <laughs> I mean it's fitting this one was kind of inspired because a lot of people on tiktok who grew up or still live in appalachia would tell the tale of Or they wouldn't tell the tale, but they would warn people, never go out at night, never go investigate a noise, even if you think someone's in trouble, never go out and do these things. And a lot of the times they were referring to, mountain lions can imitate the sounds of a crying woman or a crying baby. So it is just best not to interact with that. But a lot of them would reluctantly also tell the tale of not-deers and their experiences with them. Not-deers, as the name implies, are creatures who appear to be deers who aren't. They would take the form of a deer to-
0: (laughs) 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 This is the least original idea for a monster that I have ever heard. It literally is not something.
2: Yeah, but like that's the terrifying part because you think it is until it opens its mouth and you're like, oh fuck (laughs) the appearance that they take on really depends on the deer and What level of trickery they're trying to give they mainly run through the Appalachian mountain area But they have been seen as far up as Maine and as south as Georgia North and South Carolina a lot of people who look into this who look into this creature believe that these not-deers are actually deers who are suffering from chronic wasting disease, which usually has, you know, rotting flesh on live deer, weird abnormal behaviors, and the lack of a fear of humans. And although this would be a logical reason as to why these deers exist, um, that is not what people are describing when they run into a not-deer. As many of these not-deers actually Are larger deer like really abnormally large deer with abnormal backwards joints? Is it a deer or is it not? It's not, but it's just easier to like say it is. But like they would have larger bodies that are very unnatural for a deer, Um, larger horns like horns that you would never see for any reason for a long period of time. They would have backwards joints or extra joints in their legs. Um, Oh my
0: God! That so that's always scary to me. Whenever a, a monster or a human, like a like yeah. weird, twisted, double jointedness yeah. They, and then they're running on the ceiling really fast, and then it's over. Oh, it's yeah. just fucking
2: over at that point. Listen, at that point, you just gotta skill up. But people will also describe them with predator traits, including, but not limited to, eyes that are closer together, kind of like a coyote's. Extremely sharp, wide-gaping mouths that can also stretch down to their chest. What
3: that mouth, dude, though. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
3: I want to that
0: in. So fuck you.
2: <laughs> but otherwise it is never traits that would be explained by chronic wasting disease and more like a creature just trying to make you think that there's something they aren't. Um, and all of a-
0: this will be uh, forthcoming in the new book by JD Vance. Not deer elegy.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So as I said earlier, the appearance of them can vary. And there are three levels as I like to describe them. There's the ones who are so close you wouldn't know. And it's usually if you ignore the deer you see or the supposed deer and you just go on your merry way. Um, They'll resemble deer's close, like much more closer and they might just look like they're suffering from chronic wasting disease. Then there's ones that are in a middle ground where they're starting to show way more like features that are a bit off, you know, like antlers that seem more like almost like a forest themed crown rather than like actual antlers. Um, Usually their eyes will be closer together, as I've said before, or just, you know, one of their legs may be a bit weird. Um, but then there's ones that get quite freaky, in the sense of they'll have a deer head but they'll have a human torso and arms and deer legs, and they will tower as tall as 11 feet.
0: Man, I've been to parties <laughs> where people have had horse heads, deer heads.
3: You know that reminds me of that like that deer from fucking Adventure Time? You yeah, know, with the hands.
4: <laughs> no! Damn, I thought you were just going to give someone the furry awakening no, all I
2: associate with that is trauma.
4: <laughs> like, when I, when, I,
2: when I think of furry awakenings, I think of like Lola Bunny from Space Jam. Like, I don't think of the deer from Adventure Time.
4: Listen, I'm just gonna say this right now. People do anything to get
2: freaky. I mean, have you seen people who literally write monster?
3: Polymorphic airplanes.
2: <laughs> Don't out yourself! Too late! <laughs> as I said, some are less deer looking and more grotesque and way more terrifying. And if you come face to face with one of these, you will die. Like, it's not a debate. You, you will either die or get so injured you'll die in the forest. And because of their sharp teeth and their predator-like appearances, Um, but they are known to hunt people down as many people will claim that they'll run into one of these creatures, whether on horseback or like on a motorbike and they'll be like three miles from home and the deer will chase them the entire three miles and because of their predatory traits, um, like closer eyes, sharp teeth, um, we're pretty sure they're carnivorous in nature. The only thing that's different between them and my previous story is that there is no way to deter them. There's no salt, there's no counting, there's no religious symbol that will save you. You just have to hope you never run into one, and if you ever do, that you make it out alive. In terms of actually avoiding a scenario, if you either live in the mountains or you live in a foresty area, you're fucked. (laughs) You're either gonna have to move away or just never leave your house and always put the shutters down.
0: I have to to respect this because most of the other monsters we've been talking about have been these sort of objects of morality plays, right? Like, this is to punish children for doing this, or this is to punish anybody for having sex, or whatever. But it's like, there's nothing like that involved with this. This will just get (laughs) your ass. It's
2: like, if you even so much as step on a twig around, it's like, all right, um, you're becoming my meal tonight. Like, oh, funny. it's like
3: we do an anti-sex action. Like we join a malice group. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the not deer gathered in a circle of self-criticism.
2: Hmm.
4: I was just saying, this is like SCP level of things. It's like, so how do we stop it? Ha-ha, <laughs> you don't. So what do we do? Survive. <laughs> you just
2: pray. Just
3: give it to the eternal alligator.
2: Um, you just gotta open your arms and just. Yeah, I-,
0: I bet those alligators would love them some uh, not deer. Hmm. That would be an epic battle.
2: I'd watch it. Although some people have told stories of like not deer actually helping them get out of the forest, most stories are actually of not deers becoming aggressive or offensive. Not in a political sense, offensive in like they will kill you.
0: They're just misunderstood.
2: I think they're just self conscious. They're
0: they're self conscious and they're misunderstood <laughs> and they are just dis- economically dislocated. Or they're
2: just straight up bastards.
1: I'm just saying,
2: but also also a lot of people have theorized that with the indigenous tribes that lived in the Appalachian Mountains before settler colonialism um, People actually do theorize that the not deer does come from their cultures and that even though they will attack Indiscriminately they will like I theorize that they're just going after white people for the sake of what the fuck this was my game This was my game and look what you fucking did. I mean, someone's gotta do it. Someone's gotta do it. And this just terrifies me because like, I already like have a high concern for animals and I will like look at like random animals, whether it's a deer, a moose, and be like, oh, look at that. But then like, if I see something even so much as like a little bit wrong with it, I won't get unsettled, but like highly concerned and I'll want to go near it. Which, you know, might be another tactic of the not deer, like appearing a little bit broken so that it can lure you in and like eat you. But like, even though they've been seen in the daytime, like you, like if you see these at night, one, you're gonna have a hard time getting out of the forest. And on top of that, who's gonna believe you? Because literally there was this one woman who was telling the story of when her family was going on a trip. And keep in mind, like her parents are much older. She's already had her own kid and they're just on this trip and it's starting to snow on the road. And so she's trying to make sure that her parents can drive because they hadn't drove in snow for a good while. But she looks out the window and she sees a grotesque deer, not one of those subtle ones, like this is one where their bodies were normal, but their heads were actually flattened a little bit. Their um, mouth actually did stretch down to their chest and there was nothing but rows of sharp teeth. And their eyes were much closer together. Their horns were much larger than their body and she was nearly about to scream. And so she's telling her parents, we do not need to stop for any reason. They're like, what do you mean? We're almost out of gas. And she told them, we are not stopping until we get out of the forest area. And what's even worse is that she wasn't the only person to see. Her daughter in the car had actually seen the exact same scene and had started crying as a result. Um, Also another tip of advice, if you see them while you're in your car, don't stop. Just continue driving for a little while until you're in the city
3: put on the a chicken (laughs) reggaeton.
2: And, like, I don't know about y'all, but, like, I grew up on Creepypasta. Like, I was ten years old already, like, reading them on the internet. And, like, the idea of one of these things, like, scares the ever-living shit out of me.
0: It does seem to belong in that category, though, (laughs) of, uh, of Slenderman, or Candle Cove, or the Knot Deer. Yeah, but, like, Like Slenderman
2: resides in the forest, though. Candle Cove is just, like, ooh, spooky, non-existent show. It was in our
0: hearts all along
4: anyway maybe it wasn't this maybe it wasn't the story maybe it was just all the nightmares we made along the way <laughs>
0: Exactly. <laughs> uh, i wanted to make a pitch because we watched this um uh the other night or a, f- a few weeks ago um if you like zombie movies and you haven't seen blood quantum watch fucking blood quantum. Blood it's quantum. so good. Uh, and uh, it's also entirely indigenous made. Actors, uh, film crew, director, writers, producer, everything.
2: I have a hyper fixation over zombies and honestly this is one of the best zombie films I've watched as of late that doesn't follow the American trope. So if you've been looking for something zombie related that like isn't, you know, just a copycat of another American zombie film, Blood Quantum is the way to go.
0: Yeah, if anything, uh, it's, you know, um, know, without wanting to give away the farm, um, you know, settler colonialism is the the sort of overarching uh, symbolic theme uh, of the movie, but it's just so well made. Anyway.
2: And with that being said, everyone have a happy Halloween and a good evening. And to keep the Halloween fun going for a little bit longer, we'll be having Angel give his queer review on Hellraiser.
3: Good evening, everyone. This is Angel with your final segment in Soliscarity Special, the annual Halloween special brought to you by Solidarity Collective. You may not know me, this is my first solo segment on the podcast you're also familiar with. Recently came up into this community a couple months ago. Hopefully you enjoy my voice for the coming months and the future podcasts. But right now, all the spooky stories you have heard so far, we're actually going to theory and analysis. So anyone who's not into that, probably a good time to go back to sleep if you're staying up there's in one AM in the morning. Which is I respect that to be honest today's topic we'll be looking into the queerness aspect of the 1987 film hellraiser directed by clive barker and produced by christopher fix based on barker's 1986 novella the hellbound heart it's a debut for barker's film series essentially and where in all his film series he brought a sense of horror and queerness to his films and many aspects This analysis has been misused or downright ignored by many queer theorists who honestly found his interpretation of queerness to be distasteful for the queer community, mainly because monsters and seen as outside the status quo, and sadly with a lot of queer theorists trying to attempt to get the idea of queerness to be set in the status quo, aka liberal theorists. Unlike me and fellow queer writers and enthusiasts and queer horror, I don't see it that way. Gladly I wasn't the only one to do this just now because if you want to see a better in-depth analysis and the more eccentric themes of Hellraiser besides queerness, I would do recommend watching a YouTube video by Cock Philosophy on the same topic. Great thing too came out in Halloween. Well I love that analysis and it brings great amount of importance into the queer aspects of Hellraiser. It doesn't go far enough. Mainly because cock philosophy is a head man. Doesn't necessarily understand the queer experience compared to my community. That being, a, uh, I could say you could say a cis man with a complicated relation with gender, but like, let's not talk about that because gender's cringe. And also pansexual poly fuck. That's also another thing. So I feel I have a decent amount of reasoning to go from the queerness aspect of Hellraiser. And so being that, let's just start us with the premise of the movie. Starts off in a seemingly normal situation with a dissatisfied individual who has found come about a puzzle box from a dealer. He is dissatisfied with his life, has no seeks of pleasure anymore as it was used to, and wants to seek something out. He finds this ache. Being fulfilled by an unlucky source, sources that we call Cenobites, which has some weird Christian background, but to be honest, I don't care about enough for that Christian shit, because to be honest, I would toss it over the window, to be honest. That's not the important part. So the main Cenobite, of course, name of the Tat of the Hellraiser, which by your appearance, if anyone has ever watched the film, I hope you have. Otherwise, you probably want to stop this and get back over there by this weird, ambiguous, white creature. Technically, the actors, ma- the actors are male, but it's supposed to be an androgynous individual, covered in all white, with needles sticking between all over their body. And a weird, weird, well, no, not so bad, leather daddy kind of get up. Okay, so he, he, he's into the freaky shit. And if you don't know what Cenobites are, and because you don't want to watch Hellraiser, if you watch Rick and Morty, it's those weird fucks that got a kink from pain and pleasure. Which is kind of the same premise. It's a very simplified premise from here. So, they have a real relationship with the ideals of pain, suffering, but inclusion of pleasure. Great subject if you're really into the esoteric Dionysian school of philosophy. Especially if you're into George Bataille's work which I do recommend reading or having a basic understanding of his works to really appreciate this semi duality of pain and suffering to reach a point of so much suffering is extreme ecstasy. You will see great amount of details in the cut philosophy video. One example of being the old former Chinese torture of a thousand cuts and where sadly prisoners were cut excruciatingly painful with a thousand cuts. But they were something peculiar as they reached the end moments of their life. A sense of ecstasy, a forbiddenness, taboo that we always lust for. A taboo that many in the queer community have come to embrace as a way to escape escapism to the cis-head society has rejected us for e- eons, especially as a great forward movement for leather daddies as they were a great starter for the liberation of queer individuals, especially to the perceived perversions of what would be people back then called drags, fake women, or preferably trans people, in the sense that the rejection of the cishet normality, this perversion, as they would put it, of what it means to be a man, woman, or basically a human in their eyes. For most of history, I'm pretty sure any queer person would agree. We have been exercised from society and told to conform, and in most Harv, that's the basic point, to defeat the great evil and return back to the status quo. But there's something very peculiar about Hairraiser. It doesn't give the illusion that they're evil, sadistic beings. Granted, do they look a little bit grotesque and terrifying for your five-year-old child to see? Yes. But they're here only because we asked them to be. In our deepest desires a sense of taboo that society has taught us to ridicule to exclude and to eradicate but unlike in every other reactionary horror film minus the indie stuff of course because you always have to mention the indie artists when it comes to this always had to be different respect that though they have a representation of queerness of negation now what is negation it is basically the process of wanting to do Exercise yourself willingly sometimes not you know, of a status or patriarchal society that one we have right now essentially the status code that we have a great writer lead Edmund surprisingly not a queer like full-on professor theorist honestly a professor of literature which I'm very surprised about would have been a great professor for queer theory but nonetheless he chose his jobs Brings this to the forefront that queer life, queer existence is the process of negation and destruction of cis head society. And that instead of trying to put ourselves back into the normality of life or be accepted by it, he calls for something complete opposite. Complete negation. Complete rejection of cis head society. It's destruction, and if not so, it's abandonment. we must live as authentically as we can to liberate ourselves from this patriarchal gender-based and gender-violence society that has captivated the masses for so long. And that in order to be free and in order to feel any true life in this world, we need to reject it. Otherwise, we're going to perpetuate the systems of control and suffering. And there's something about Hellraiser. There is process of not going back to the Status quo and relieving ourselves into a new area, an area beyond ourselves, not to be reinterpreted back into the society, but to fully join and escape the old. It brings this horror of rejuvenation, of pleasure, of life, of insurrectionism. What is to be said about Hellraiser in all honest cakes? The greatest 1980s, late 1980s, I don't know about earlys because. Pink Flamingo and all these weird esoteric queerness movies came out before and after that movie came out, shows the fact of a future and where we are truly free, and that future is negation. Now some queer individuals will go against this and say that no, we can't just ex ourselves from society, we have to go back to it, we have to be accepted by it. But for time and time again, we have seen through the course of history that throughout if you're not the centerpiece of that society's patriarchy or control factor, you eventually will be sacrificed to a lamb. It is recognized that, in many instances, the Cenobites are seen as horrid, petric creatures. Regardless if some individuals try to sympathize with them, in most cases they don't because they're weird, hellish individuals with a bunch of fucking scars and depraved looks in their faces sometimes. I see that in the sense of the allegory and how at the time, greatly at the time, how cis cishet society perceived us depraved, disgusting monsters that corrupt their children and corrupt everything part of their life. Great allegory in my opinion, especially considering the fact that many of those individuals in the eighties that saw us as those monsters will continue to see us as those monsters. And as we progress through life, we always come with the conclusion that we're moving forward. But in all honesty, progression isn't linear. It varies between cities, civilizations, time periods, and circumstances. Basically, the continuation of materialist and idealist practices and how we analyze the world. We are not always going to be accepted. And in many cases, we will never be accepted. But that acceptance is at a price for their comfort zone. And once something happens, let's say Oh, we're corrupting your children with drag queen story time. They reject us, they ridicule us, divide our community for their own little sick game to reinforce their patriarchy. And you can say that, oh, through this reform, through these actions of acceptance, we will get through that. But no, there's no childish idealization of actual acceptance. It sees the views of fact that the Cenobites would never be accepted. But that doesn't mean they won't accept you. They are there to give you that life and that sensation that you never experience. Granted, is it gonna feel like hell and well, you're probably gonna get your skin ripped? Yes, you're probably not gonna be accepted by society ever again. But at the end of the day, you will feel fulfilled. You will feel that croissance that you deserve. I'm sorry for my French, how to sound pretentious for a second. But in all cases, we should accept that. We should look to that viewpoint and see that this is the only true community we have. The community that we created for ourselves, people who have been rejected by society, who will continue to be rejected by society. We need, need that. Forever how painful that process might be in the future or in the current time with how more homophobic attacks are happening to our lesbians, trans people extensively, especially with that Dave Chappelle controversy that happened. I see Hellraiser as a great representation for the queer experience throughout time, maybe not to the 1800s because like, without their vast expanse of people and information as we do now, but definitely now, with all the hatred that we see, with all the contradictions within not only society, capitalist civilizations that we see, we need to look in ourselves and reject the gifts, quote-unquote gifts, and false promises of society that has been plaguing us for centuries upon centuries of gender society, and move on for that for a new beginning of taboo, of depravity, debauchery, degeneracy. We should need to destroy that for the sake of life and for the sake of true satisfaction. Otherwise, we're gonna continue on being dissatisfied, exploited by capitalism, exploited by the men using, especially white men, power with their little diversity, inclusions, that all that's their point is to s- serve the status quo again. So take that mantle, take that weird looking cube they had, and call out for them. Because at the end of the day, they're the only ones who are going to give us true satisfaction. We are the only ones who are be able to liberate ourselves. No cishet society that's been based on gender violence will ever free us but ourselves that is the message I got for Hellraiser from what I got from all the years I've seen it even now being 14 watching it like long ago I still remember those things very properly still bothers me every Halloween once I realize the analysis of what I know now how much that movie can really impact us and how great honestly of a horror film it is well if you're into it and thank you for having me for this last segment Solid Scarity Have a good evening, and have a spooky night.